Welcome to the Swim Swam podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, she is a three-time Olympian, Olympic captain, and now our, uh, our eyes and ears at NBC. We're sitting down with Elizabeth Beisel. So happy to be here. Thanks, Coleman. Tokyo for a total of 17 days. Total right? of 17 days. And ask me what I saw out of Tokyo <laughs> for 17 days. Nothing but my hotel room and the pool, which was fine, right? Like so grateful to be there. Um, very strict quarantine regulations, which made sense for everybody. Um, but yeah, I was there for for a hot minute. So you're dang doing. I can't imagine, were you at the full, were you at both trials too, or just wave two? Yes, I was at both trials too. And I didn't go home between the trials. So I had like <laughs> three weeks in Omaha yeah. and then a two or three week break at home. And then another almost three weeks in Tokyo. So my summer has been pretty bunched up and I'm home now. I can enjoy summer in Rhode Island, which I'm really excited about, but yeah, like crazy whirlwind summer feels a little bit nostalgic because it feels like it would have felt had I still been swimming, but I'm lucky and I don't have to do all the training to do that. So I'm happy. Yeah. You still get to, you still get to hit the road, be, be at the swim meets. Um, so let's, let's talk about it. You know, you're, you're behind the microphone now you're watching. Um, first of all, at trials, how was it to have two different trials meets and to kind of get your feet wet with wave one. I know for me and like uh, everything I was doing, it was really nice to just kind of get there, get the lay of the land, get used to the workflow and then go into wave two where, you know, people are actually making the team. Yeah. I completely agree with what you said. It was so nice to kind of have not a warm up event, but an event to kind of get into the flow. Like you said, Um, and for me, it was great personally because I was able to commentate every single race at finals for wave one. And what I've learned in this industry, meaning like the, the media industry is like the more reps that you get, the more comfortable you'll comfortable, you're going to sound, the better you're going to be. And for me to kind of have that experience through NBC and have them trust me to call wave one, um, was a really big confidence booster heading into wave two trials where I wasn't on every race. I was on a handful of races, um, but still like prime time experience, which is very nerve wracking because it's prime time and your words are pretty much associated with that race forever, you know, and same thing at the Olympics. Like I called women's 1500 and men's 1500. I believe also the 800s in prime time and before the races, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, like even after the races, every time Bobby Fink goes and rewatches this 800 and this 1500, my words will forever be there. And you want that to be perfect for not just Bobby, but also the people watching. Um, I'm going on a tangent right now, but it's, it's a lot, you know, like you, you want to be perfect. And in a world where I come from the swimming world, you're, success is measured by times and places, things that are very black and white. Whereas in the media world, your success is based off of whether people like you or not, or their opinion on you. And for me, that's something that I kind of struggle with because it's new to me and I want to be the best, but it's kind of like, like there was this quote that I read, you could be the juiciest, ripest peach in the world, but some people are still going to hate peaches. And that's kind of something that I try to remind myself where I am never going to be everybody's cup of tea and that is okay. Um, But I want to do the best that I can and getting those reps like the ones that I got from wave one back to your original question um, are huge. And that helped me a lot. So That, that, that was a perfect answer because this is exactly what I want to talk about and what we don't get to hear. You know, we, 
as swim fans, we're used to hearing Rowdy and Dan, but we never get like what, what, what they're going through, what's going through their mind, or, or we just hear them talk about swimming and say, yeah. say, same with you when you were calling races, it's like, I want to know, I want to know everything that goes through that. Like, like the pressure of like, Oh my God. So like when, before wave one, had you called meets before? I called, um, a couple ACCs and SECs, mm-hmm. but aside, I think my entirety, like my entire repertoire of calling before I got to wave one, I probably did six to eight meets total. Um, so certainly not enough to say that I'm good at it, you know, but yeah, probably six to eight meets. Had you, had you talked to anyone about just like what to expect? Like, what do I do? How do I handle maybe certain situations or just generally it's like, this is obviously not a guidebook, right? You don't have coaches telling you, Hey, put your elbow up, you know, (laughs) here's the technique. It's that's such a good point, Coleman, because that's kind of what I'm used to, right? Like give me a set, give me the intervals and I'll do it. And that's how I get better. It's like a plus B equals C in this world. There's no set. There's no interval. You are kind of just thrown into the fire and expected to perform. And so I was lucky enough um, at wave one and wave two to have guidance from Rowdy. Mike Tarico sat me down multiple times and gave me unsolicited advice. He was like, Elizabeth, you have potential. You have the personality for this. Like, and they were little pieces of advice down to like the posture that I should be using when I'm calling a race. You know, what should be in front of me? What should I be looking for? Should I be calling it off of the screen in front of us or live in the pool just beyond that screen. You know, there's so many little intricacies that I never knew about until I was in this world. And even me going to journalism school, you know, that was kind of out in the field experience covering politics or car accidents or things like that, not commentating swimming. Um, So between Rowdy and him giving me advice and, Mike Tarico and Dan Hicks, you know, all of that helps, but until you experience it for yourself and what truly goes on behind the scenes, there is no guidebook. There's no way for you to expect uh, how it's going to be. And so this experience that I've had this summer has been the priceless um, because I now have that under my belt and can move forward and go to an SECs or an ACCs or whatever I call a lot more confident now. Yeah. Okay. I have to a posture you're not even on camera most of the time yeah but I so this is actually what I did you know I was calling a prelim at Olympic trials wave two I think it was the 800 free um and it was it wasn't a circle seated heat so it was a very calm heat and I was kind of slouched in my posture kind of sitting back and Mike after that race was like Elizabeth your energy is always great but it's greater when you're sitting up straight and whether you know it or not, somebody at home listening can kind of hear if they know you, whether you're fully dialed in or not. And that was a huge learning experience because prelim final circle seated, not circle seated. I need to be bringing the same amount of energy for every single heat. Um, And now I am like straight up. My back is not touching the back of my chair. My feet are planted on the ground. Like, I am engaged. I am there hundred percent. And it's yeah. Down to the posture. Like you would never think that that was that important, but for somebody like Mike Tarico, who is the best at what he does, it is. And if Mike Tarico tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. So. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Is yeah. It, are you looking down at the screen though? Like, isn't that hard to like I'm trying to, you know, like straight back, but then looking is no, you're, that hard? Yeah, it is honestly, because for the most part, you call what you see based off of the screen, because that is what people at home see. So I might actually have a better vantage point of the pool and what's happening there, but everybody at home, no one has that. So you have to call exactly what you see off the screen. So yeah, you are slouching into that screen you're staring at it the entire time but also trying to project your voice upwards and forward um so it's it's an art 
and it's a performance and it's, it's, it's a really, really cool thing. And I'm just so excited Coleman to share like all the ins and outs of it with you because I learned a lot and I think it's interesting for everybody else to kind of hear about it. Totally agree. So first of all, you, you know, you're talking about how the audience notices if you're, if you're completely engaged or if you're a little, a little more laid back. So, so what I'm hearing is that you have to be fully engaged every race for, you know, what, what could be two to a two or three hour session, um, prelims and finals eight day. Like, as I'm saying this, I'm just getting more and more tired because it's like, this sounds like a lot. I mean, that's a lot to be fully engaged. Um, so between, between the whole Olympic trials experience, what did, what did you learn about, um, how you had to prepare? Like, are, are you recovering like an athlete between sessions? How, how, how did you handle just, or how did you get yourself into that mindset of, okay, I have to be fully there all, for the whole session? Yeah, it's, it's hard. And even for somebody like me, who's naturally an extrovert, I get my energy from other people. There's something about being on and like on, on for eight days straight that even for me is insanely draining. And I'm, I'm just going to walk you through Coleman, like a day. Um, so it was very eye opening. And at trials, I didn't know how easy we had it because I hadn't been to the Olympics yet. And I'll get to the Olympics after. But yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, for trials, we'll say the session starts at 10 a.m., I think. Mm-hmm. We're at the pool, 7 a.m. sharp for a production meeting. And in that meeting, we are going through every single heat and lane, all the pronunciations, storylines for every swimmer that we think are interesting, maybe ones that coincide with packages that we've already made for the bigger names like Caleb Dressel. You know, how can we loop this in? to the broadcast and just all of these little things that go into a simple, what one would think, two hour broadcast. So we do that for about three hours or two and a half hours. Then we go to the booth um, about 30 minutes before the session starts and we do a quick rehearsal. We check the mics, the levels, the sound, audio, all of that. And then we're on air from 10 to noon or whenever the race is over, calling every single heat for the most part um for the distance races we were only doing maybe the heat before the last two circles heated so we do the last three heats in distance um and there's no time to get up to go to the bathroom there's no time to think you just have to put your blinders on and hope that you are not repeating yourself too much or talking about the same thing um you want to make it as interesting as possible for the viewer at home um while respecting the athlete as well you know, you don't want to forget any athlete in the race. You want to highlight everybody as best as you can. And so after that session was done, at least at trials, I was able to walk across the street to my hotel room because we were at the Hilton. And then I'd probably, well, actually I would swim for like an hour, which was really nice because um, the warm up pool is open. So I get a workout in, um, which for my mental health is really good. Then I'd go back, shower, change hair, makeup, um, cause you might be doing it on camera. You might not, you never know. And then you're back at the pool by 3 PM sharp again for another two, two and a half hour production meeting. You do it all over again. Then you call finals. Um, and finals are obviously more nerve wracking than prelims because those are in prime time. So there's just, I mean, same with swimming. It means more. Um, and so then you'd finish around whenever the session was over 9, 10 PM and go to bed, wake up, do it the next day. Um, and for eight days, it's a lot, it's draining. I'm not used to like that amount of work in such a condensed period of time. Um, and it's stressful too. So you're tired, you're stressed, you want to do everything perfect. Um, but yeah, the, the Olympics were like 20 times harder and I'll, (laughs) I'll get to that after you need to ask, ask me another question because I'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that just sounds so exhausting. And to, yeah. I, again, I mean, you know, it's like to do that for a day or two days or even in like a three day or a four day conference meet, it's like, that's one thing. 
but to do like if anyone's never been to an eight-day meet it's like a it's such a different beast oh it's a completely different beast yeah I mean it's it's just like night and day difference and and the, the the energy you expend the exhaustion you experience the emotional fatigue you experience is just especially at trials it's like just being there is I'm sure for you especially who have so many personal relationships with all the with all of these athletes that are there and seeing them either you know their dreams coming true or their dreams the opposite of coming true um were you I mean, at trials, did, did you feel that side of it a lot? Yeah, like too much. And that, that for me was probably harder than just the exhaustion of mm-hmm. trials because you're right. Like I'm still, I'm not that far removed from being an athlete. And so this was the first trials that obviously I hadn't swam at and I still have friends competing and when you're on air, you cannot show any bias towards anybody. Um, that's extremely unprofessional. And so when I'm calling a race and Madison Cox and Melanie Margalis don't make it, who are two of my closest friends on the national team, I, like my heart breaks, I'm at a loss for words. But at the same time, we have to celebrate the incredible feat that Alex Walsh and Kate Douglas just did. Like, like it is so hard to balance those emotions because there are so many personal relationships in this and yeah, it's, it, it was very hard. Trials was very, very hard. Um, And even to the point of me just watching the final races and being like, how did I do this? Like, how does anybody do this successfully? Like, like having that perspective of stepping back and being like, this is literally the hardest meet ever. Forget the Olympic games. Like Olympic trials is the hardest thing that any of us will ever do as athletes. And it's just, it's, it's hard because I want to give everybody a hug, but I can't. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an experience for sure. I was grateful to be there. Um, but really exciting yet heart wrenching at the same time. Um, and I'm sure as I get further removed from being an athlete, it, it'll get easier maybe, um, because I won't be as good as friends with everybody anymore, but yeah, it was, it was hard to watch some of my peers not make the team, um, and kind of not have that life dream come true. So, I mean, you mentioned that you were able to swim, you know, during the day, which helped a lot mentally. I'm wondering if, if there were any, any other things that really, that really helped with that, you know, cause obviously the physical fatigue, the emotional drainage, um, you know, were there any other things that really helped you kind of get through those eight days or like, okay, I need to make sure I'm doing these things so that I can be sane and still keep performing at a very high level. Yeah. I mean, I think just, it was, it was like pacing myself. I couldn't get too excited. And I have tendency to do that because I'm like, ah, day one, oh my gosh. And then by day like three, I'm totally crashing. Um, so I needed to go into day one, which Rowdy really helped me with. He was like, Elizabeth, like you were an athlete at Olympic trials. This is an emotionally taxing meet. Do not like show all of your cards on day one, like truly pace yourself through everything. Every session is going to be emotional, exciting. Um, and so he, he really gave me some insight and that, and that was down to just like maybe me waking up 15 minutes early in the morning and having my morning coffee and like the quiet. Um, there was a Starbucks in the lobby of my hotel. And by the end of my 21 day stay in Omaha, I was friends with everybody that worked there. They knew my order, but like they were part of my sanity um, because I was at the door at 6 a.m. when they opened every morning. And that was like part of my morning ritual. I got my venti coffee and I sat in my room for 15 to 30 minutes, kind of went over the events of the day um, just in quiet and then would head over to the pool for seven where we would start the production meeting. Um, So it's like taking even if it's just 15 minutes for yourself, um, I think those moments really kept me sane and able to finish an eight day meet. 
at the same energy level on day eight that I had on day one. Um, and that that's for anybody in anything, you know, athlete, commentator like me, you covering it for swim, swim. I mean, Coleman, it's not easy for you either. Like you're pumping out articles every 10 minutes on every event. Like, like it is not easy for anybody. Um, and so it's just like getting the perspective of somebody else's week versus your week. You're kind of like, Oh my gosh, like it's crazy for you too, but in such a different way, like how cool. Um, so yeah, it's hard for everybody. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's a hard meet. I, I think I say it on every podcast. I, people might be sick of hearing me say it at this point. Cause, but like, I'm just like, I can't emphasize this enough. This meet is crazy and it's yeah. so hard and it's yeah. like so long. Um, like, like taking 10 minutes in the morning is something that I try to do every day of life and like having that quiet, I think is, is, can be so important. Just waking up, getting, getting your mind in a good place. And I, and at trials specifically, like at the, this trials that just happened, I would notice the mornings I didn't do it. Like my mood would foul much yeah. earlier in the day. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it, it, I, I'm glad you said that. Cause it, it, I can, can be a really big difference and it's yeah not that much time but so so now I'm wondering um coming off of trials I I had to take like a week and like I was working but I couldn't do anything else like I couldn't work out I wasn't like I was like I had to rest um you went you had a few weeks you got to go home (laughs) did you just like collapse (laughs) Um, yes, I collapsed and it was actually, um, a really sad three weeks. I don't mean to like make this morbid, but within a week of me getting back from trials, my dad passed. Um, so I didn't really have much time to process trials, um, because I was planning a funeral and a wake, um, trying to enjoy like the last few days that I had with my dad and, I was really grateful for the timing of it. Um, Obviously the circumstances aren't great, but the fact that I was able to go to trials, come home, have a week with him um, before he passed and then not feel rushed to get the funeral planned or whatever. And still have time to kind of mentally prepare for the Olympics. Um, I feel like I now being home from the Olympics, I finally had a, chance to just like breathe and process everything, uh, the emotions of the Olympics, my dad trials. Um, so as much as I kind of wanted to like shut off after trials, um, I had other, (laughs) other things happening, obviously. Um, and it was, yeah, it was hard because you're emotionally exhausted from trials. Um, but kind of had other things on my plate. So not to go in a very dark alley there. Um, it was, it was just a hard three weeks, you know, after an already hard three weeks at trials. Um, so I really had to be careful managing my emotions and where I was putting my energy. And I kind of haven't even really had an opportunity to process trials yet because it was like, boom, home dad, then Oh, guess what? You're flying to the Olympics for almost three weeks. Um, and that's also a very high pressure cooker that you're going to be in. And so now that I'm home, it's kind of an opportunity for me to, now I have really just not been able to do anything and I've been able to shut off and kind of like, I go to the beach. That's like my mental health, happy place. And like, I have a journal and I'm just kind of writing emotions down, which has really helped with my dad, with, the Olympics with trials. Um, so I think over the next couple of weeks, I will have a lot of reflecting to do, um, in terms of what this summer brought me, um, and stuff like that. So. And you're talking to me right now. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) But, But here's the thing, like life goes on. Um, and for me, I am somebody that I, I deal with grief alone. Um, but like doing stuff like this, like a podcast with you, Coleman is something that excites me. Like I, like, I want to talk the behind the scenes of the Olympics. I want to give people an inside look and it's, 
it's maybe I'm helping somebody who wants to go into this industry and I'm able to give back to them by doing this. And that's, that's what my dad would want me to do. And that's kind of been like my new mindset where if I'm, if I'm not really feeling up to something, I obviously give myself grace. And if I like really, really don't want to do it, I'll say no. But the majority of the time, like my dad would have wanted me to like keep living my best life and saying yes to things and doing podcasts with Coleman, you know, like, it, like you, you kind of have a new purpose and, and like making them happy by doing things, um, for them, I guess, if that makes any sense, hopefully. It, it does. And that's a, I, I don't know if I would be able to do that, but that's really cool that you have, you have embodied that mantra and, and been able to do that. I, I, I am curious, was that, was this something that was expected your dad passing? Like it was, was his health deteriorating or, or did it completely catch you off guard? And, uh, no, so it was expected, um, yeah. which I don't really know if that's a, a good or a bad thing. Um, it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges, but he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in December. And we, he had been doing chemo every single week. Um, and towards the end around like when I left for trials, I actually wasn't even sure if I was going to go to trials, um, because it was getting really bad. And my dad was like, absolutely not Elizabeth. Like you are going to Olympic trials. I cannot wait to watch you and listen to you on TV. And I was like, if dad, if that's what you want, I'm going to go to trials and I'm going to be as happy as I can be while I'm there for you. Um, and then once I got back, uh, that was kind of when things started to go really South and it's crazy because I almost think my dad was like waiting for me to get back. And like, I had a week with him once I got back from trials and that was such an amazing time because I was able to spend every minute with him. And I mean, he had, he got chemo three days before he passed. Like he was not giving up. Um, and that's like the type of guy that he was, he was always positive. He never complained. Like the closest thing to a complaint throughout those six months of him having cancer was him just saying like, I want to feel normal again. Um, and so I sit here like complaining about long days working the Olympic trials and like, I, I saw my dad's life end and it's like, how, how can I ever feel sorry for myself? You know, when this man went through hell and was just like, you know, I just wish I could feel better. So it's perspective is everything. Um, and my dad taught me that. And so I, I don't know if it was good that we were expecting it, um, because we could at least make the most of the time that we had with him. Um, but then again, it's also hard, you know, for anybody that has a parent with cancer, you're kind of, or any disease that will unfortunately end your life. Um, you're kind of like waiting for the inevitable and the waiting is really hard as well. So it's, we dealt with it the best that we could. Um, my dad was an absolute rock star through it all. And he wanted me to be at trials. He wanted me to be at Tokyo. And so I, I buckled up and I did those things for him. Um, and that's kind of where my strength came from through this whole summer. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> no, sorry. That got heavy. quick. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, that's, yeah. it, it, it never ceases to just completely blow my mind how, how you never really know what's going on with a person. And I think athletics is like such a great teacher of that because you see this person swim a race and you think, and you're like, Oh, they're going to do good or they're going to do bad. And maybe they do, or maybe they don't. And then it's like, well, yeah. And then all this judgment comes up of like, Oh, well, they should have done this or could have done that. And then it's like, they're a human being. They have like a million things going on with them. And yeah. Yeah. Like you have no, like there's so much more than that race yeah. that you see. And it's such a good point because that's like the two minutes of exposure that you have to that person. Um, and, and bringing it back to like the media, that's, that's not a lot of time for us 
to tell a story about all eight swimmers, you know? So it's just like, it's a, it's a really, really hard thing to do. And especially with NBC at the Olympics, like we are, we are not catering to people that watch swimming all the time. We are catering to people that tune in once every four years, in this case, five, that are like, I love the Olympics. Swimming is on. Cool. I don't know what that stroke's called, but <laughs> I love Caleb Dressel. Like, like that is who NBC is catering to because that's, guess, on, unfortunately in our sport, that is the majority of people that are watching the Olympics um, that make up the viewers and pay the bills and for NBC. And so it is really hard to go back to what you were saying, Coleman, Coleman, about every swimmer has a story behind who they are as an athlete or what time they just went or what medal color they just won. And like, it's so hard to pick which story to tell. Do you know the story? Do you not like how deep do you go into it? Um, so yeah, it's, there's always something going behind the scenes and it's kind of nice when we're able to tell those stories to be like, Hey, like with Annie Laser, her dad passing and the story with her and Lily King, like that's, if we didn't tell that, you'd just be like, Oh, how cool. Like Annie Laser and Lily King went two, three in the tuna breast, you know, like that's all you would know, but to be able to kind of give some context behind how amazing and impactful that swim was and what that meant for not just Annie, but also Lily, it changes the entire narrative from not just a tuner breaststroke, but this was like, this was hell to get here and look what we did together. Like I have chills right now. Oh my gosh. That's what I love about like the storytelling aspect of it. So dude, no kid. I mean, that was like one of, if not the race of trials, that was one of, if not the race at the Olympics. I mean, it's, it's just like, Oh Yeah. That's, that's and a- it's because of stuff outside of the pool. Right. And yeah. like, I wish the races were longer so we could give people at home more of that. Um, but again, it's, it's so hard because the majority of the races are over in two minutes. So. And there's eight swimmers. <laughs> and uh, eight swimmers. So. <laughs> so, so when did you find out that you were going to Tokyo? Did you know heading into trials or did you not know until after that? So I actually auditioned um, to go to Tokyo at NBC in January of 2020. Um, So back pre-COVID, obviously. And I found out that I was going to be going to Tokyo on like March 12th of 2020. (laughs) So if people are like, COVID, oh my God, ding dong the day before it was named a pandemic. So I get the call from NBC and they're like, Hey Elizabeth, you've got the job. You're going to Tokyo. I'm like, dream come true. Like I get to go to the Olympics and work for my dream company and do what I've wanted to do since I was a little kid. Um, and then of course Olympics postponed. So I had known for over like a year and a half or like a year and a few months. Um, so Tokyo was always on the docket for for me, which was nice because I would practice at home. Like it kind of sounds crazy, but I would just Google random races, like even my own, like Elizabeth Beisel, Turner Backstroke, 2008 Olympics, put it on mute and like call the race, you know? Cause that's like, that is literally the only way that you get to practice this job. Um, because unless you are lucky and you get to call every swim meet that there ever is in the world, which nobody gets to do, you're not getting reps. You're not getting practice. Um, and as much as I could practice in that way at home, nothing can replicate the actual thing and being live with your mic hot calling a real race. Um, so I wanted to do everything in my power to kind of prepare myself and give myself peace of mind heading into trials in the Olympics. Um, but yeah, I was lucky enough to know that I kind of had my ticket punched, um, well before the games even happened. You had your ticket punched just like the athletes. I know. Right. I sound like such an athlete. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you, you had your ticket punched. You knew you were going to Tokyo. I mean, I mean, take me there. So you got there well before the game started. Yeah. So we had to get to Tokyo 
about six full days before competition started um, to quarantine. We would, we had to do three COVID tests before we even got onto the plane. Um, so for me, that was Boston, Tokyo to prove you were negative. Um, then once you get to Tokyo, all of NBC was staying in one hotel and it was the Hilton. And we had to do a COVID test every single day, PCR, prove that we were negative. And then while we were there, we were only allowed to leave our hotel if we were going to our specified venue. And so for me, that was the pool. Um, so I went into this knowing that I was not going to experience Tokyo, which was okay. Like I'm going to go to Tokyo again one day in my life and experience Tokyo for it's what it is as a city. Um, this, and this was kind of very similar to just a normal swimming pool hotel. That's it. Um, so luckily I was used to that. Um, and so, you know, we had a bunch of production meetings leading up to day one of the Olympics, going over the feature stories that we had storylines that were potentials that we wanted to keep an eye on meeting the director, the producers, the PA, um, just getting to know each other. Like Dan Hicks and I had never worked together. Um, and so getting a rapport amongst who you're sitting next to in the booth is very, very important as well. Um, and so kind of Dan and I spending some time together, Rowdy and I have known each other for years. So that was easy. Um, just like, meeting the producer, kind of getting a feel for what they want from you as talent. Um, and it, it was just like a very eye-opening thing because I think people turn on the television to watch the Olympics and they're like, oh, cool, great. Like, look at that replay or look at that interview. And they think it just like, we throw it together. Like it happens. Yeah, it just happens. Oh, look at that shot that we got. That's so lucky. No, we planned that shot four days in advance. And we knew what camera angle it was going to be. Was it camera two? Was it camera four from a bird's eye view? Was it the underwater camera? Like so much goes into an hour long broadcast and even down to, are we going to have time for an interview? When do we go to commercial break? Um, do we linger on somebody celebrating in the pool because it's such a beautiful moment? Kind of like Annie Laser and Lily King um, with Schumacher. So there are so many things that are planned, but also we kind of have to go by the seat of our pants and be like, you know what, scrap that feature. We're going to stay on Lily King and Annie Laser because this is, this is good television. This is good storytelling. Um, so yeah. And, and then again, to kind of walk through a day at the Olympics, like I did for trials, the, the Olympics was the hardest thing that I've done, um, in terms of, like commentating and doing this job so you get to the pool or what we call the compound which is where NBC's trucks were where we transmit everything to the states to the world we get to the compound at 6 a.m every single day so we leave the hotel at 5 45 get there at 6 a.m we have our production meeting which at the olympics is almost three hours um because the first half of the meeting is with the director with the producers me, Rowdy, Dan, Michelle Tafoya, talking about what replays do we want to show on Caleb's 53? Um, do we want an underwater angle? Do we want above water angle? Um, how many replays do we want? Should it be a side-by-side -side with him and Michael Andrew? Or should we ISO Michael Andrew? Like, there are so many little things that go into you watching a 50 freestyle. Um, and... <laughs> Like, Rowdy, what's your replay going to be? Do you want to see the entire 50 from underwater to show Caleb's no breath? Or do you want to talk about his start and how great he is off the blocks and how strong he is? So all of these things we decide before they even happen. Um, and of course, we're able to like go with the flow if something crazy happens um, and Caleb gets DQ'd or something. Like, we have to be able to have those camera angles as well. Um, but... We're going through all of the pronunciations, which you think is a lot at trials. Try pronouncing names from around the world uh, of languages and cultures that you are not familiar with. Like, and so we have people like Mike Unger, who works for USA Swimming, but helps NBC, walking the deck every single morning, 
finding if he can, the athletes, and if not their coaches and saying like Coleman Hodges, how do you pronounce your name? He gets it on a voice memo. He brings it back to the compound. We then pronounce your name for five minutes to make sure that we do not get it wrong. And so we do that for every single swimmer in every single heat. Um, You know, we want to make sure that we're getting every storyline, like I said. And so after that three hour meeting, um, then we go to a second meeting and that's a mini meeting between like me, Rowdy, Dan and Michelle. And we talk about, all right, Rowdy, what do you want to talk about during this race? Elizabeth, what point do you want to make? just to make sure the conversation flows and we're not just like, like talking over each other um, because you don't want that at all. That's not enjoyable to listen to. So we're not scripting things word for word, but we want the conversation to flow and we're doing that beforehand as well. Um, so once we get that, we go to the booth, check the audio, check all of our screens and we call the prelims or I guess in Tokyo, if we're going through the morning finals, we call finals. Um, And then there is not enough time to go home from the compound to the hotel. So most days Rowdy, like bless Rowdy, he DM'd on Twitter, Airweave, who is an official Olympic mattress sponsor. And Airweave sent me, Rowdy, Dan, and Michelle for air mattresses where they were brought to the compound and we had a trailer like picture just like a literal trailer where rowdy brought in the air mattresses and he and dan were often michelle and i actually went back to the hotel a couple days but we would take naps in the trailer for like an hour just to kind of like let our minds rest and then wake up 2 p.m production meeting sharp started all over again for prelims that night Um, and then you do the entire thing over again and you get home around 11 PM every night. And so they are, they're like 18, 19 hour days and you do that for eight days straight. And so, and, and the thing is with being talent, like, and talent, meaning you're on air, like people hear your voice, um, for people that don't know what that means. Um, you need to be sharp. Like, I know that when I get tired, like anybody else, I don't make sense. Like I might trip over my words. I might use the wrong tense or the right, or the wrong word for something that I mean different. Like you need to be well-rested. Your mind needs to be sharp. And after eight days of that amount of being on and not getting more than five hours of sleep a night, like you, you truly start to go like lucid. So you, you have to really have an ability to shut your brain off and shut like your social self off. It's incredible. Like by the end of the week, Rowdy, Dan, Michelle, and I do not speak like, like we are sitting in silence because we all understand that we are all extremely fatigued and we need to savor and yeah, savor every ounce of energy that we have for broadcast. Otherwise we're just wasting energy. Um, So again, long tangent, I'm really sorry, but a lot goes behind the scenes and the truck itself, which is where there's like 83 computer screens. The director is calling which cameraman, what shot to show producers. It's just organized chaos. Um, a broadcast is, especially when it's live. But I think there's something to be said for like incredible live television. And that's why NBC and especially at the Olympics, like they win so many Emmys because their reporting, their storytelling is so captivating. And I was in tears, Coleman, every session, like every session, because every race was just like touching me emotionally I have lived it so maybe I can relate on a different level but it's just it's the Olympics are such a beautiful thing and I was so lucky to be a small 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 part of the storytelling that goes on um at the games so first of all the (laughs) I totally this makes so much sense to me I totally get it but the visual of the four of you just sitting in silence between sessions 
is hilarious to me. <laughs> I know because like, we're all like very extroverted people, but it got to the point where I was like, I can't even say hello to you. Yeah, like yeah, just, yeah, just... And, and we were all on the same page. So yeah. it was, it was nice. That's great. <laughs> um, second of all, what you mentioned, you were a small, small part of it with swimming fans. We took notice of that and we had a problem with it. We wanted um, more. We wanted more Elizabeth Beisel. What's the deal? Are you going to like, we, you, you mentioned you called, you called a few races. That was super fun, but like, we, we want more. I Well, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, but I, again, like back to what I was saying earlier about the, the monumental, just like aura that an Olympic games holds and a final holds. I am personally not ready for that responsibility, right? Like, like I can lean on Rowdy and Dan in a 1500 freestyle. Um, and I can make some really good points that hopefully get across to swim fans and non-swim fans. But I think for me, I was, I was just grateful to be there and kind of learn from Rowdy and Dan and see what it truly takes to be in the booth at an Olympic games and the amount of pressure and nerves that comes with that. Because again, like you are calling life-changing races and I don't think I am personally ready for that. And, and that's okay. And NBC knows that like they, they know that. And I think that's part of the reason why I was used on just a handful of races. It was to kind of get my feet wet, um, get me some real, experience prime time at the Olympics, um, to prepare me for what might be a future in this, which I would love. Um, like that would be a literal dream come true. So I think like, if I keep working hard at this and I keep saying yes to opportunities to call races like SECs, ACCs, conference meets, maybe NCAAs with Rowdy, um, the better I'll be come when it, when it, could be time for me to call the Olympic games. And, and I'm okay with that. Like, because I want whoever it is as an athlete and whoever it is at home watching the Olympic games to rewatch that race. And if it's my voice, I want them to be like, that was perfectly called like that, that gave me chills that made me feel some type of way. And so I want to get there eventually. And I'm not there yet. I'm self-aware. I know this, um, so hopefully with time and with more experience, I'll be able to have more of a presence on air. Um, but for right now, I'm kind of just like really okay with getting that experience and seeing it from behind the scenes, because that's what's going to teach me. Um, and that's, what's going to help me learn to become the best delivery possible for everybody at home. Putting myself in your shoes. I told, I totally get it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a great perspective to have, but like coming from, coming from the outside, we're, we're the whole, the whole games. We're just like, why, why isn't Beisel talking more? We want to oh, hear, we want to hear Beisel. Uh, I mean, that was, that, that was our, our discussion at Swim Swam HQ. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of the fans thought that, but we're excited that, that you're here that, that, and, and hopefully continuing to, to be in the broadcast chair. I have to, I am wondering Obviously, before this, you were a three-time Olympian. I think this makes you a four-time Olympian. Three, I'll go just, with that. just three times in the pool, and then and then one time right. as a commentator. I think that counts. Um, what you know? What was that experience like? Of I mean, you alluded to it. Every race was so emotional, and you kind of connected with 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 the emotion of the Olympics. But what was it like? You know, not swimming, but still getting to see the swims. Um, I would. I would be lying if I said it was easy. Um, especially that first session, the first two sessions, because that's Hornet I am. Yeah. I have never not been to Olympics and not swim the Hornet I am on day one. And I think watching that, I was crying um, both times. Crying because it was kind of like, all right, Elizabeth, like you don't do this anymore. Um, it, it was kind of like a, gut punch and that that's like who I was for so long. And I'm no longer that person. Um, crying probably tears of joy because I didn't have to do it because 
of the nerves that go into swimming uh, any race, but I, I think especially a former I am, um, seeing Emma Wyant like win a silver medal. Like I won silver in 12, Maya won silver in 16, Emma Wyant win silver in 20 or 21, I mean, and then flick on the podium. Like she just started swimming this event. Like I was emotional be because I was so proud of them. Um, so it was just a very layered experience for me. Um, but I think the overarching theme of me being at those Olympic games personally was just, I am so grateful and lucky that I get to do this and I get to do I, I get to cover the sport that I love most. And for me to be at my fourth Olympic games in the capacity that I was, was truly a dream come true. Obviously sad that I wasn't still swimming because it was hard for me to look across the pool and see everybody in the stands and like me text them and be like, hi guys, like I miss you so much. And like leading a cheer through text message, right? Like Natalie Hines, three, two, one, go USA. Like, all of these things that I like find so much joy and I couldn't do anymore. Um, but it, it was just like so cool to still be able to be there and experience it from a different lens, which gave me also a lot of appreciation for what I used to do as an athlete. Um, and I hope that every athlete one day gets that perspective because I never really appreciated what I was doing. I never really knew the severity of winning an Olympic medal. Um, Cause I was just kind of like doing what I did. I was just swimming fast. Um, that's what I do every day. And even able, even being able to watch some of the races with Michael, cause Michael Phelps was there with NBC. Right. Um, he and I at some points were like, how did we do this? And like, and, and trust me, I know I am not in the same category as Michael Phelps. No one is. And even he was like, dude, Beisel, how did I swim two Olympic finals in one night? Like, like how? And I was like, dude, I don't know. I, I swam one event at the Olympic games and I don't know how I did it. Like, like, it's just, it was cool for us to kind of have that moment of, wow, we were truly amazing. And every single athlete here regardless of what place they're getting is truly amazing. Um, and so that was a really cool moment uh, for me to have, especially with somebody like Michael. So. The, I, I, so you've explained it. So now I kind of have an idea, but I have to ask a quick question about Michael being there because we, it was the same kind of thing where we were like, Oh, Michael's calling races. This is awesome. And then we are like, wait, he called like two races. Like we want to, we want to hear more Michael. Cause we just want to hear Michael Phelps talk, but you know, he was kind of all over the place. He was doing different things. Every time he talked, it was great. Um, but yeah, like what, can you just explain what his, what he was doing, what his role was or, or how you interacted with him there? Yeah. So Michael, um, I think, like you said, Coleman, he was there for a number of different things. He was there to kind of host with Mike Tirico, um, to call a couple races with Dan and Rowdy, to do some interviews with people that were hosting shows for NBC. Um, I think it's, I mean, when Michael Phelps is on camera or on the mic, people will listen. And I told him that. I was like, Michael, you could really do this if you wanted to, like, like if this is your new trajectory of staying within swimming and the Olympics, this is a great option because you're very easy to listen to. You're very knowledgeable. Um, your resume speaks for itself. Like no one's going to be more qualified to talk about the Olympics than like Michael Phelps. Um, so I think, and, and it was great for Michael and I, because I think he and I became a lot closer, um, because we were kind of going through the commentating thing together and how hard it is to have four people in your ear while having a conversation with Rowdy and Dan, while watching what's happening on the screen, keeping track of splits, storylines. Like, like I remember after his first race call, I think it was one of the 400 IMs, it may have been Chase's, and he walked down to the booth and he was like, Beisel, 
I don't know what just happened. Like I, I like blacked out. Like that was, that was so much. And I was like, I know, right. Like, it's so nice to be able to relate to somebody and like, be like, what is happening? This is so much. Um, and, and I, I really do think Michael enjoyed it. And I mean, for me, selfishly, it was amazing having him there because he's a friend of mine. He's somebody that I'm comfortable around. Um, but yeah, I think he was there with NBC to kind of just like be a face of the Olympics to talk about what it's like to be an Olympian, the pressures and not just through swimming, but through hosting with Mike Tirico or going on other shows. So he was a very versatile asset for them to have there. Um, and I, and I, like I said, I really do think he enjoyed it. So I, I hope he keeps saying yes to those types of things because I think it's a really great opportunity for him. And I think he's talented in anything that he does. And that's why Michael Phelps is Michael Phelps. And he's going to be the best at whatever it is that he does. So we've talked internally and all I'm going to say is we want Phelps and Beisel in the booth. <laughs> oh my God. That'll be so fun. But then I'm like, we, would we even call the races? Like we, we would just be like talking to each other, like having a conversation. Just I don't know. Like, maybe that's what people want. Just be talking about Chase Kalish's French bulldog the whole time. I know. Oh, Floyd. I love Floyd. <laughs> so great. <laughs> so, so you mentioned it, but I, I think a great way to close this out is that, you know, you, you mentioned keeping to keep saying yes to these opportunities what does a career in, in this field look like just in terms of, is it, is it purely a case by case thing where it's like every different swim meet, it's like, well, they might ask me to, they might not. Um, and, and how do you, how do you move through that kind of, how do you move through that, especially now that your swimming career is, is over and your professional career is just starting? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I think it is kind of like that where I'm, I'm certainly not on a salary basis with NBC whatsoever. I sign a case by case contract with them. Um, so I think if they come back and they ask me to do a certain meet, I'm of course going to emphatically say yes. Um, but that being said, swimming is a very niche market and I'm very aware of that. And so what I would love to do is become more versatile and dive into different sports. Um, maybe do like some lower level sideline football reporting, um, or I don't know anything really like, because aside from like the big Olympic games once every four years, that's kind of like, all there really is in the eyes of like big, like heavy hitting media for swimming. Um, so there is one thing that I would, I would love to do is kind of do a 30 for 30 type thing with swimmers and talk about mental health or like those storylines behind the scenes that you don't see in a two minute race because we can't possibly get to it. Um, maybe I do that through NBC. Maybe I do it on my own. Um, I just, I think these swimmers especially deserve a lot more credit than they get. And that's the nature of our sport, unfortunately. But if I can have a hand in changing that and giving some athletes a platform to do that, like, like you guys do, like swim, swim does like, I mean, me doing this podcast is you're doing this for me. So I, I think it would just be so cool to kind of have a series where I get to sit down with an Annie laser and get real about what it was like and how hard that truly was, or sit down with Madison Cox who deferred law school for a year to make the Olympic team and misses it by 0 0.02 or three. Um, and how she's doing now and how she's handled that. I, I, that stuff is very interesting to me. And I'd love to do that. That might be a passion project. I don't know. End of story. I'm on a tangent again. I would just love to become more versatile in the media world. Um, and I don't necessarily know what that looks like yet, but I do believe that this is the path that I feel most comfortable and confident going down for kind of like my next stage in life um, as a career. So that's exciting for me because I feel like I'm on the right path. Um, like anything, it's slow and steady. You kind of have to trust the process. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. 
that's just great. That is just great. Uh, I'm trying to be more like you, Coleman, honestly. <laughs> okay, that's where we need to end because you're just, <clears throat> just sucking up to me now. Beisel, no. it's, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us truly the inside scoop no. of, uh, of, of behind the scenes in NBC with trials and the Olympics. Before we sign off, do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? Um, I don't know. I guess thanks for listening. If you made it like, oh my gosh, we've almost been an hour. So thank you for sticking with us. I hope you learned something, um, got some really cool insight as to what it's like to be somebody behind the scenes broadcasting the Olympics. Um, and then I guess thanks for your patience with me and my commentating. It will get better every time that I do it. I promise you that. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.